Good morning, everybody. Let's stand together as we begin to worship. Come on. Created from dust.
suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry then from north to south and east to west we dear Christ be magnified with the whole the whole earth echoing his eminence his name would burst from sea and sky from rivers to the mountain tops we dear Christ be magnified so I'm going to sing this out single Christ be magnified Christ be magnified, let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. When every creature Finds us in most melody. Every human heart is native pride. Oh, then in one enraptured hymn of grace, we'll sing Christ be magnified. When we sing this out, sing, oh Christ.
sing. Sing, oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. Amen. While you're standing up, go ahead and find somebody around you. Tell them hello. Try and meet somebody maybe you've never seen before. Maybe you can move around a little bit. Maybe you've just seen someone for the first time. And tell them hello. Try and learn their name. Say hi to a few folks around you. All right, once you've had a chance to say hello to some folks around you, you can grab a seat. We'll share some announcements together, and then we will uh, open back up into worship this morning. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. We are honored that you're here. My name is Trub Prater. I'm lead pastor here, and we are blessed that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. If you're here for the very first time, we want to tell you what a privilege and honor it has uh, to have you with us. If you're back for the first time because you've been on a COVID uh, Union 5, then we are welcoming you back. We're excited that you're here um, but those of you that have kind of been here for the past few weeks, um, it's an honor. It's a great privilege to be able to gather together in corporate worship. And so it's been a long time coming, and we're excited about uh, gathering again and the things that have been unfolding over the past weeks and even kind of where we're headed into the summer. And so it's a much different outlook than where we were this time last year, and we, we're really excited about that. That being said, we do have several things that are going on we want to make you aware of. But before we do that, uh, I want you to know that if you are a guest with us, we'd love for you to take a moment Fill out this guest card. Let us know that you were here. We'd love to have a record of your presence. Maybe just follow up with you uh, with an email and let you know how you can get involved or just tell you we're really glad that you came. Uh, we won't show up at your house or anything like that unannounced and sit on your couch and any of that kind of stuff. So, um, But we would love to send you an email and tell you what we love you. Uh, that being said, if you have a prayer request or anything else going on in your life, on the back side of that card is a little prayer request card we take very seriously the opportunity to pray over all those requests. Um, if you have something you wish want to share, a story, whatever it is, we'd love for you to fill that out. Uh, let us know about that. You can drop it under your chair or you can put it in the offering box in the back of the room. We won't take offering by passing a plate. We just simply ask if you want to support our life and ministry. You do it that way or through our online community called Realm. Realm's how we stay connected throughout the week, share announcements, all kinds of things. It's also how you can keep up with all your own giving, monitor that, uh, keep up with your tithe, download all of your giving statements. All those things happen in our online community. So if you're not signed up for Realm and you're probably not hearing about great things that are coming up like this Thursday night's family worship night, so step outside when you're done here. Go to those little kiosks by the children's check-in area. Put your email address in there on those iPads and we'll get you all signed up. Um, you can do everything from your email ad inbox or you can download the uh, app 
and you can stay connected with us um, that way. But we do have stuff going on this week. All our life groups are meeting throughout the week. They meet all over the city. Some of them meet here. Some of them meet up in Edmond. Some of them meet over on the west side of the city. We have opportunities for everybody. We'd love for you to be involved in a smaller group than what happens here on Sunday morning. We want to be a community made up of smaller communities. And so our life groups are meeting. All those are available on our website. You can check those out or you can visit with Brandon or myself after worship and we will get you uh, connected with those. But those are happening. We also have a women's Bible study that meets up here on Monday nights and Kathy Cross is leading an all church prayer time that meets at about 545 up here as well. So if you're interested in either of those, we'd love to have you be a part of that. But this Thursday we're having a family worship night up here. Starts at six o'clock and uh, we'll have food and uh, child care for the very little littles, but for the elementary age kids, we, we want them to participate. It'll be a, a great family worship night. If you can, jump on Realm, uh, find the post there about the family worship night and RSVP. All you got to do is make a comment down below, and that would let us know that you're here so we have enough food and we make sure we have enough child care workers. So we'd love for you to be a part of that. It'll be from about 6 to 7.15, 7.30. That includes dinner. It's free, of course. Just come, be a part of it. All you've got to do is show up, and, and uh, we're going to worship together and share some food and enjoy some time. So that'll be this Thursday night. We'd love for you to plug in. We also told you last week about some stuff that's unfolding this summer. We've got a cool opportunity, which we're going to do a, a, a big family church night uh, down at the Bricktown Ballpark. We've got that going on. We've got some family picnics we're going to be doing throughout the summer. So we're really excited uh, about what's unfolding and getting back into life that's driven by community. So get on Realm so you can stay up to date with all of those um, small pieces. For those of you who have been part of our Bible reading plan, Brandon's been leading our community through uh, basically a daily or weekly Bible reading plan for the past year. Um, that's kind of coming to a, a culmination this week, and we're going to be starting a summer Bible reading plan. So if you haven't jumped on, we'd love for you to do that. We have a deep desire that our entire community would be just embedded in the Word of God. Each week, Brandon posts a little summary video, so if you don't get to see him in Enough. You can watch his videos. Uh, they're all online as well. And so, uh, but that's a great way to just kind of stay with community. We use a realm area to encourage one another and uh, continue to challenge one another to stay in the Word of God. So if you're interested, make sure you get on Realm and join the Bible study reading plan group. And then you'll get all those announcements and all those kind of things as well. But that'll be starting next week for the summer. So we are into week 10 of the study that we've been kind of moving through the book of Hebrews, a study that we've entired, entitled Hope and Glory, the idea being simply that Jesus is all that we need. He is in control of all things, and in him all things hold together. We have talked about Christ's sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ, and we've looked at this incredible book as sort of this, this anchor, right, in a, in a world that has a bunch of shifting waves where the tides are moving and that Christ is our anchor, he's a hope, he's our glory. And we've used this as a place, kind of like a, a calling in the wilderness, a way home. And Hebrews is a great book because it reminds us of the anchor that Christ is and the hope that we have in him. And what we're going to see this morning as we open up Hebrews chapter 5, we step into this new section of text, is that Jesus is the only go-between we will ever need. He is the ultimate and perfect high priest. He is the only go-between we will ever need between us and holy and majestic God. And we're going to see three incredible reasons, deep, powerful theological reasons why this is true, why we just need 
Jesus. So as we prepare our hearts to go before the Lord in his word and in worship, let's take a moment, let's pray together, and then we will dive back into worship. As I uh, reminded you last week, we've got guest worship leader Chase here. We also have Caleb who's leading us on drums today, and so we're excited to have these guys be a part of us Why Don gets his uh, break out of town once a year. We give him two Sundays and that's it. So uh, we, run a tight sh- we run a pretty tight ship around here. So, um, All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. Thank you for the faces that we haven't seen in a while, for the faces that uh, are kind of slowly coming back, and for the, the guests that are here. But more than anything, Lord, we just thank you that we get to gather together and worship you, the one true God. Lord, you deserve and you demand our worship. You are holy, mighty, and majestic. And so, Lord, we don't take that for granted. This morning in this holy moment, we have the opportunity to be as a community with you to have you minister and move in our hearts, to draw us into your presence. Lord, every one of us walked through this door this morning with something. Anxiety, fear, worry, just something. Discouragement, mediocrity, whatever it is. Lord, but the great thing about who you are is that you meet each one of us right where we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up or make ourselves look right or say all the right things. You just sort of show up. You take initiative with creation. It's why we don't invite you into this place. You're here. There's nowhere we can go to escape from your presence. And so, Lord, we just stand and ask you to move in us, to meet us where we are, to let us worship you, the one true God, that you would teach us through your word, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit, and that we might glorify you, that we might see your face and the neighbors around us, that we might worship you with all of our heart, that we might let our cares and concerns fall by the wayside and just stand in the presence of holy, majestic, mighty God and say, Lord, I am yours. So this morning, Lord, as we enter into a time of worship and we open your word, I pray that you would move in us, that you would draw us closer to your presence, that you would empower us and impact us, reminding us that Jesus is all we need. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship this morning. Sing this with me. And higher than the mountains that I face. Yeah, you know this. And stronger than the power of the grave. And constant in the trial and the change. This one thing remains. Yes, it does. This one What is it we sing? Your love never fails and never gives up and never runs out on me. Sing.
it goes on and on and on. cross. Oh 
not enough Not enough Unless you come Will you meet me again Cause all I want Is all you pray together this morning. Father, we are thankful. As much as we can truly be to be in this room together, to worship you, to be in your presence, to be with your family, to be with your church. Father, we pray that you bless us this morning. You teach us. You let us know of your presence. You let us know of your wisdom and of your power and your majesty. Father, show us who you are this morning in a way that maybe we haven't understood, maybe we haven't experienced before. Father, just bring us closer to you this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of our Vine Kids time. Uh, They can follow these guys right out the side door. Miss Jenny's leading the way, heading out that direction, or you can go out the back over that way and around the corner, but 
Glad you're here this morning. It's great to have everybody back in worship with us. We are excited. If you are here for the first time again, let me reiterate how honored and, and grateful we are that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. And so we're excited to have you here. Our goal is pretty simple for uh, you if you're here for the first time. We, we really want people to be nice to you. Um, so if they're not, tell me. Uh, no, I want them to be nice to you. And we want you to have an encounter with the risen Christ. Like those are our deepest two desires. Not that you would come back or be entertained or would walk away and be like, oh, that's, you know, Ed, great, whatever. Like our hope is just that, that you came to a place where people are kind and uh, that you've had an encounter with Christ. And after that, like everything else is just just gravy. So we are glad that you're here. You've stepped into this kind of a deep time in our life as we study the book of Hebrews. And, and this is kind of the way we like to teach and the way we like to preach is we like to move through text. We want you to fall in love with God's word. So I have zero desire to just simply entertain you and have you desire, want to come back. Or I've had people say, you're the first person that's never put me to sleep. I, I kind of, I don't know if that's offensive to everybody else and me or whatever, but like, you know, you have no substance, just stuff or whatever. So that's not our goal. Our goal is that you would fall in love with God's word. And so we, we love to teach through it and work through it. That comes with its sets of challenges. And we decided to tackle the book of Hebrews because it is this incredible picture of the supremacy and the sort of greatness of all that Christ is. And it speaks through both the Old and New Testament to show this perfect picture of God's redemptive plan for humanity through Christ. And it's a powerful way to see sort of the vibrance and the aliveness of God's true kind of word for us. And so we started this journey, and what we've learned along the way has been, been pretty interesting, right? We've learned that Christ is in and above all things, that he is supreme and that he is sufficient, meaning there is no one greater than he is and that he is all that we will ever need. No amount of our struggles, our weakness, our fears, our failures, none of those things will ever amount to Christ, and no earthly anything will ever hold a candle to who he is. And our author, who we don't know who it is, most likely presents this book as a sermon, which we've explored. And this sermon is really preached to a group of people that are facing incredible hardship. Uh, these Jewish Christians are facing a ton of persecution, but they're also facing a lot of backlash from their families. And we've explored this at length over the past week, so I won't go into it too deeply. But if you were a Jewish Christian in those days, essentially, essentially most of the community, including your family, believed that you were a blasphemer, that you were someone who was rejecting the one true God because you have made a proclamation that Jesus is God, and therefore you should be punishable by death, if not just excommunicated from the community as a whole. And they faced immense pressure from their family and immense pressure from the community to not only just return to the Jewish faith, but to completely renounce this idea of Jesus. And if that weren't enough, there was a band of Christians, quotes, going around telling these Jewish Christians that they actually couldn't be real Jewish Christians unless they took the gospel and they Judaized it, which basically means that they said, yes, I'll believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I also need to fully keep the law. So I had to keep the law and believe in Jesus, and if I didn't do that, then I wasn't a true follower of Christ. And of course, much of what Paul writes in the New Testament is against that whole premise um, of Jesus plus anything. Right? He came to fulfill the law. We don't have to keep the law any longer. And so a lot of the letters that he writes is addressing this idea of these Judaizers that are going around to the church in Galatia and other places saying, you have to do this if you're going to be a true Christian. And Paul says, no, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. And Hebrews is the kind of culmination of that picture. And that's why we return to the idea of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And so throughout these chapters, as we make our way to chapter 5, we've learned a lot of things. But basically, our author, our preacher is telling us that Jesus is greater. 
He's greater than the angels, which we saw in chapter 1. He's greater than the law, which we saw in chapter 2. He's greater than Moses, which we saw in chapter 3. And as we stepped into chapter 4 last week, we're learning that now he's telling us that Jesus is greater than the high priest. Even the most religious, perfect person, if you will, that was appointed by God as a go-between between he and the people of God, that even Jesus is the great and ultimate high priest and is greater than anyone that comes from that line of Aaron or any other line at all that's classified as a high priest. And so we kind of stepped into that a little bit last week, and we're going to continue it this week because it's going to take us all the way through chapter 7 as our author explains why this is so vitally important theologically. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Um, and, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses there, and we're going to explore this idea of the high priest. We're going to see some things from last week that we're going to be reminded of. And then we're going to see a few new things, a new, few new ways on why our author is going to tell us that Jesus is the ultimate and great high priest and what that means uh, for you and me this morning. So let's take a moment, let's pray together, and then we're going to open God's word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity just to gather together this morning and, and uh, worship. For the richness that comes from being together in community, you are a community God. Even the Trinity itself is a picture of community, Lord, that you have called and gathered people since the beginning of time. And, Lord, you've called and gathered the church of which you are the head. Lord, we were never meant to live this Christian life alone. Every part of it was meant to be lived together. And so, Lord, that's why the, the sort of importance of corporate worship is so valuable to the Christian, because it's a community affair. It is a, a relationship that we have that is lived out among one another, a relationship with you that is lived out among one another. And so we don't take that for granted. So we're grateful for the opportunity to be here this morning and to open your word and to worship. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Um, whatever that means, whatever you need to just let go of or ask the Lord to, to just convict you of or change in you, just anything, just say, Lord, teach my heart this morning. Just whisper that to the Lord. And then take a moment and pray for someone around you, beside you, behind you, in front of you. And even if you don't know their name or you're here for the first time, just pray for that person. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. As I say, everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is really not about you. So be a person that prays for the people around you. Pray that God would move in them, that he would uh, correct them, that he would empower them, that he would impact them, that he would convict them, that he would do the things to draw them closer to himself. Pray for that person. Maybe it's your spouse or a husband or a child, or a friend, or just a neighbor, or just someone you just met. Pray that God will move in their heart this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. Everything about it is yours. We do not invite you into this place, Lord. We just release ourselves to you. We ask you to invade our soul. Lord, you are here. There's nowhere that we can go to escape your presence. Lord, you tell us in your word that you are in the very air that we breathe. And so, Lord, let us breathe you in this morning and teach our hearts. And we ask all this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So, book of Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to let you know a little secret. Um, so, I'm going to tell you, here's, here's kind of the best way to phrase this. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with the book of Hebrews. So, well, as a whole, as it was, it was written, there's nothing really perhaps wrong with it. But the challenge is that Hebrews on many levels is unpreachable. Um, it just is unpreachable. And, and I say that in the most kind of 
important way because it's not designed as a letter for the church to just spend 20 minutes with and then walk out going, man, I feel really better about my life, right? The book of Hebrews is designed to be, um, well, truthfully, it's designed to be like all of God's word. It's designed to be meditated on and thought through and time spent with and wrestled with. It has deeper questions that it asks. It has pieces in it that sort of demand its own kind of study. Like we're going to look at a couple of verses this week that real or that today that really deserve six or eight full weeks just to explain the thought process behind them. And that makes preaching it really hard because we're going to skate over some things that I really think we would be deeply kind of, we would just miss if we didn't go deeper on that we just flat out can't. We just can't. But they're so powerful and so rich and so true that Hebrews sort of demands this kind of study. So my hope one day is to take all of this and turn it into something that we don't do on a Sunday morning, but that we can really move and digest through. Because we are going to pass through some things today that I wish we could just park on, um, but don't really carve themselves out for a Sunday morning. It's kind of like, so my wife and I have been married, we'll be married 24 years this summer, right? I know, she's, she, I'm great. She's she deserves me. Um, no, I'm just We've been married 24 years this summer. And we went on our honeymoon back in 1997 to Jamaica, right? Because we were babies and didn't know what else to do. And that's what we did. Although we, I wish we would have waited a year and then done a honeymoon. It would have been much better, right? Because then we'd know that we still were together and it was all working out. That first week is weird anyway. So that being said... Um, 24 years, right? And, and so we went into Jamaica, and one of the things that we did, we did a bunch of activities. One of the things we did was we went on a glass-bottom boat ride around the reef, right? So they have all these things at the resort we were at. And, you know, and so they, they take you on this glass-bottom boat ride, and they drive you over the reef, and you can see these fish. And it's really cool if you've never been to any place where you can see the bottom of the ocean. I grew up in Texas, and we go to Padre or wherever, where you can't see your feet when you stand in the ocean, right? So when you go to a place where the water's clear and you can see it, it's like, this is incredible. There were stingrays and fish, and they are pointing stuff out. Well, the next day, we signed up to go snorkel the reef, right? Now, that's a different experience. If you guys go on scuba diving or snorkeling, we go out in this boat, glass-bottom boat, same thing, except they push you off the edge. And we spent the next two hours under the water, and I am telling you, right, it's so different. You see these things from the surface, and you're like, oh, that's pretty amazing and pretty cool. But when you're down there and you can see the colors vibrantly, and you can see all the nuances of the reef and all the pieces, then you begin to see the true beauty and true picture, right? And that's really what I'm talking about with Hebrews. We're basically on a glass-bottom boat ride. Today I'm going to point out a few clams, right? But... If you get down in there, there are fish and there are colors and there is beauty that is unbelievable. So please use Hebrews as a launching place to get into God's Word. All right, that being said, let's go for a boat ride. Um, So the high priest, right? So let's do this. Let's just read it and then I'll I'll figure out how we're going to get there because it's a bit of a challenge today. All right, so let's go. We're going to go 1 through 10. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. Every high priest is elected from among men and is appointed to represent them in manners related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. 
So Christ, who did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So you can see just or hear just from our, the way that these verses play out that we're talking about something now that is quite deep and very theological, theologically rich. And the whole book has actually been there, right? Jesus is better than the angels, better than the law, better than Moses. And now we're talking about this idea of the high priest. So but to really understand where we're headed, we have to understand the role of the high priest. And, and verse 1 kind of lets us in that door a little bit. And verse 1 says, therefore, uh, or it says, every high priest is selected from among men and he is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. So the idea of a high priest was this. We have a God and we have sin. And that creates a whole host of problems. Because holy, majestic, mighty God cannot be with what is unholy, sin. And therefore God created a remedy though he would appoint humans, a man, through a specific line that would serve as a go-between. That that person would come and in manners related to God, they would offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people. And if you read any of the Old Testament, especially Leviticus and some of the other places, you will see how that Levitical line of priests came about and what their specific roles were. But in a nutshell, that high priest was a go-between holy, majestic God and sinful, broken humanity. And that go-between would offer a sacrifice not only for himself, but for the people, and it would basically settle God's anger, and offer, usually involved animal sacrifice or blood, sometimes grain or his gifts and other things. And God would turn his anger away from the people, and they would be in favor with God again, because God would take the sacrifice as a covering uh, for their sinfulness. And that's basically, in a nutshell, the way the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. The order of the high priest was the go-between. He had a certain set of specific characteristics. He was appointed by God. He didn't run for office. It was not something that anyone sought, as we read, but God appointed him, and they had to keep specific duties and things, and they had to keep a life that was pure. And even so, they had to sacrifice from themselves because they were still sinful, and once a year, they would make a, a, a movement of the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for the sin of all the people. And that becomes the role of the high priest. But the role of the high priest was severely inadequate because, and glaringly so, the high priest was a human. And the high priest was sinful. And the high priest had to make a sacrifice for himself. And the high priest would die. And there was no guarantee that the high priest would always be there to be the go-between because if the high priest was a human, there may be a time where that human died or where the next person in line didn't want to serve. There were just flaws. It was incomplete and it was inaccurate and it was not the perfect picture, but it was God's remedy at the time. But what it does with the whole life of Israel is it points to something greater. And the idea being is that the human high priest is not the end-all be-all, but that Jesus is going to be the great and ultimate high priest, the last one that we would ever need, the last go-between that we would ever need between us and God. So here's what happens, is that our author tells us that's the role of the high priest. Now, he's going to show us three really important ways why Jesus is the great and ultimate high priest, why we will never again need a human to be a go-between between us and God. 
It's why portions of Catholicism are so broken is because we do not need a go-between, right? We have the only high priest, the great high priest that we will ever need. And so here's where he begins these three key pieces, these three things that Jesus does uh, that make him the great and ultimate high priest. So he says, verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Now, here our author is actually talking about the human high priest, right? Verse 1, each uh, high priest is appointed by God to represent them in matters related to God. And that high priest deals gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins. So one of the key roles of the high priest, and this is why this gets a little deep, is that the high priest had to be a sympathetic go-between for the people. That was one of the great characteristics of the high priest, is that he would go before holy, majestic, mighty, perfect God, but he would be a sympathetic high priest to the people. Basically being, because I am understanding their plight, I can be a go-between this holy, majestic God and the brokenness of people. And verse 2 says, it's why he can talk gently to those that have gone astray, because he understands what it means to sin or what it means to fail, or what it means to struggle. So one of the great key roles of a human high priest, right, that has to be transferred to Jesus the high priest is sympathy and compassion. And one of the the challenges is that people believe that if Jesus was perfect, how could he be sympathetic to our plight? If Jesus is sinless and perfect and and walked through this earth without a struggle, how could he be a sympathetic go-between to God if he is holy and perfect and Jesus is holy and perfect, then how in the world can he relate to me and my struggle with lust or my struggle with fear or my struggle with anxiety or my struggle with an abandonment? I mean, isn't that just the representation of God being perfect, God being perfect, and me being out here just screwing up again? And that's why the role of a sympathetic high priest was important. Now, if you remember last week, the first thing that we learned, and our first key that we're going to learn this week, is Jesus is the great and ultimate high priest because he understands our struggle, and he deals with it with sympathy and compassion. You remember last week? So last week we looked at 4.15. I'm just going to read it real quick. And 4.15 says this. Right? It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So this is what makes Jesus' life so remarkable, is that he walks into the incarnation, heaven breaks into earth, and Jesus walks this earth and he experiences every single thing that you and I experience as humans. He experiences hurt, he experiences abandonment, he experiences suffering, he experiences fear and anxiety. He has all of those things, yet he does them perfectly and sinlessly, meaning there is nothing that you've experienced that Jesus himself has not felt or experienced in terms of the human condition. Now this is incredibly important theologically because Jesus the high priest has got to be sympathetic to the people as a go-between for God, but he also has to be holy. So Jesus the great high priest understands our struggles, and what that means is that whatever you're dealing with, no matter how trivial you think it is, God is not scoffing at it. He's not looking at it like, how can you feel that way? Jesus knows what it means to have somebody turn their back on him. He knows what it means to pour his life into someone and have somebody just say, you know what, we're done, or we run, or we abandon. He knows what it's like to to create an entire people and then have them literally kill you. He knows what it's like to have 
stones thrown. He knows what it's like to be, have insults hurled. He knows what it's like to walk through all of those pieces, meaning that everything that you're feeling, that fear and that anxiety, whatever those things are, Jesus has experienced them, but he has beat down the monster of sin every single time, all the way to death. Jesus experienced the temptation to lie, the temptation to gloat, the temptation to lust, the temptation to steal, all of those things. He has walked in with a human condition, but he has flawlessly and sinlessly executed human life all the way to the agony of the cross. Jesus is perfect. And what our author is telling us here is that Jesus doesn't forego the incredibly important role of being sympathetic to the people. But he did it perfectly. And this is why Jesus is the great high priest and why a human high priest will always fail. It's why we cannot put our hope into human worship leaders and human pastors. It's why we cannot celebritize Christians because they will always and forever fail. We cannot hang on every word they ever write, every song, lyric they ever put together because they are written by human hands and they will always and forever fall short. But the great high priest, the perfect go-between, is both sympathetic and holy. And Jesus becomes the last sacrifice we will ever need. So the first key here to understanding this incredible role of the high priest is that Jesus understands your struggle and he's sympathetic and compassionate. Now this is important to me, right? Because I'm really hard on myself, especially in the things that I struggle with and whether it's my sin or just the things that I think. Like I beat the crap out of myself all the time. And I oftentimes think that God does that to me as well. Like he's just so constantly disappointed that I struggle with the same things over and over again. And while part of that may be true, right, that God is definitely disappointed in my sin. And he's definitely disappointed and broken when I fail. But he's wholly and perfectly sympathetic to my struggle. And there's something that's just comforting when somebody else knows what you're walking through. I remember at, at 21 when my dad died, right? I was a young kid. Um, I never really experienced death much. I had a couple of grandparents that I didn't know real well that died, but we were never close. It was just they lived somewhere else, and I didn't know them very well. But when my dad died, who was deeply and intimately involved in my life, I, I, I didn't really know what to do with all of those things. Long story super short, I meet this friend. I go, I'm at college, and I meet this friend, and he lost his dad at 15 in an accident. And in that moment when we were just visiting about our hurts, I felt so deeply comforted. Not because this guy had any answers for me. In fact, we both had the same questions. But it was so deeply comforting to know that he knew what I was feeling. Right? And other people were really sorry. They were so compassionate. They were like, we're so deeply sorry. But I just felt like they didn't know at that time, at 21 at least, what that was like for me. And, and what I realized, the comfort in that's having somebody else that at least understood the feeling of that. And, and that's what Jesus provides. He provides this compassion and this sympathy that says, look, I know, I know the struggle and the sin that you're facing, but I also know what it means to defeat it every single time. I also know what it means to not walk into it and live there and fail in it because I am holy, but I do know what it means to feel abandoned and crushed, to want to just scrap everything and wipe everything off. I know what those feelings might be. They're not rooted in sin, though, right? But I know what the feelings are. And that's why Jesus is the great high priest, is because he doesn't carry the flaws of humanity, 
but he carries the sympathy and the compassion that goes with the role. So that's a first piece. So we saw that last week a little bit. The second piece is going to come a little bit later in verse 7. And this is what I'm saying. We're glass-bottom boating over some things here that I would love to spend time with. But the second thing that we see jumps out in verse 7. It's essentially this. Jesus, the great high priest, understands what it means to submit to the will of God. So listen to verse 7. Verse 7 says, if I can actually find here, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now listen to that. So during Jesus' days on earth, so during his life, while he was in all of his humanity, right, and all of his deity, and days here on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now this, again, is one of those verses that we could spend a decade in, especially that last part where he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now we could spend a lifetime unpacking obedience and reverence and submission, but we won't. What I want you to see is that Jesus understands true submission. Now almost all of scholarship believes that what our author is referring to is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can actually hear that, right? Tears and cries of anguish. Listen to, uh, to Luke 22. This is the picture that, that uh, Luke paints of Jesus in the garden. He withdrew for about a stone's throw away from beyond those disciples, which would have been Peter, James, and John. He withdrew a stone's throw away from them, and he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and the sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from his prayer, he went back, and he found the disciples asleep, exhausted from sorrow. So think about those words, and then think about what happens in verse 7, right? During his days on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. That is what is happening in Luke 22. Jesus is gone. He knows what's about to unfold. In a matter of sheer moments, he's going to be greeted by an angry mob that is going to carry him off, put him on a sham of a trial, ultimately lead him to the anguish and humiliation of the cross, the most brutal, torturous death imaginable all of humanity, and stack on top of that the weight that he would carry with the sin of the world. Right? The full wrath of God he would bear. This is what Jesus is facing. So when he's crying out tears of anguish, he's not just saying, I don't want to die. He's literally saying, God, take this whole thing from me. I don't know that I can do it in all of his humanity. And, and our author describes that as cries of anguish and tears to the God that could save him from death, which is what we see in Luke 22. Father, if you can take this cup from me, well, let me ask you a question. Does God, the one that can save from death, do that? And the answer is actually no. Now, some may say, sure, he saves him from death because of the resurrection. Jesus actually never dies. That's true in one sense, but that's not what Jesus is praying. You cannot semantically dance around the fact that Jesus is not praying the long game. He is literally saying, if you can take this moment, this death, this agony, this humiliation, this bearing of the sin of the world that's going to unfold, if you can take this from me, please, God, Father, do. And God's response to that is no. 
to the God who could save from death, right? That's what Hebrews tells us. He cries out in anguish to the God who can save from death. And God's direct answer to those cries of anguish is no. Now, this is incredibly important because have you ever been there? A time in your life where you have prayed, I mean, just prayed for God to heal, God to, to do this, to provide a job, to, to remove this thing from me, prayed for a healed marriage, prayed for your kids to come to the Lord, prayed with earnest and anguish for something and just felt like the thing that you had longed for to be answered and the way that you wanted to be answered was an absolutely not. Jesus understands that moment. He understands the moment of crying out and having God that can save from death not answer in the way that his initial part of his prayer asks. Do you know the comfort that that is to my soul? To know that Jesus himself at a place, fully God and fully man, had a moment in perfect non-sinfulness where he asked God to do something and God didn't answer the prayer in the way that Jesus intentionally, immediately in that moment meant it. Because there are a lot of those moments in my life. And the value there is that Jesus actually chooses to be submissive to the will of God. Because there's two parts to that prayer, right? It's not just the first part where he says, take that cup from me. It's the second part where he actually says in Luke 22 there, he says, if not, right, then your will be done. So here's Jesus crying out perfectly saying, I would rather not have to do this because I know where this leads and the pain and the humiliation, the anguish and the, the taking on the sin of humanity and taking on the full wrath of God. But not what I desire, but what you desire. In other words, God, I'm going to ask, but if not, I choose your will. I submit to that over me. In other words, I will not be disappointed if you say no, because I want what you want, not the other way around. I don't want to bend my will to yours. I want your will for me. In that exact moment that Jesus prays that God will take it, he also acknowledges and prays that God's will would be done. In other words, I will be submissive to it. My prayer life is exactly like that, except I don't include the other part. All right? And when it doesn't happen, I get upset and I throw tantrums and I get sad and I think God is gone. Because my heart is so centered on me. But we have a Savior who truly understands what it means to submit to the will of God, even in those moments where God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we truly want Him to. He's still God. Even in those moments where the, the answer doesn't fold into the nice corner that I had played it out in my mind, Jesus says, I still want your will. And you know what God does? It's not that God doesn't answer Jesus' prayer. He actually answers it, right? You know how he answers it? Look at that part in the middle there of 20, or I'll let's read it to you in 22. He says, when Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will, right? He prays that out loud and then says this, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So here's what God does. God doesn't abandon Jesus. He doesn't leave him to just be like, hey, I'm not answering your prayer. Sorry about you. It says that he sends an angel from heaven who strengthens Jesus, meaning that God knew that his will was not going to end in saving Jesus from this moment on the cross. 
So what does God do in his infinite, incredible, glorious will? He comforts and aids and strengthens Jesus for the walk ahead. This is what God does for you and I. When we pray these things, it's not like he says, no, not going to happen. Get over yourself. He says, I hear you. I'm sympathetic to your struggle. I know what it's like to face that. And so I will strengthen you and comfort you, encourage you, even though what's going to happen is not exactly what you were hoping for. But my will is better and my will is greater. And God didn't say, no, he's not cruel. He didn't just say, no way, die. He said, this is the only way. And I will strengthen you and and I will comfort you and I will prepare you for it. God doesn't leave us to our own devices when we pray and he doesn't answer those things the way that we want them to. He's a God who comforts and, and, and heals and a God who strengthens and a God who will send angels or people or the church to walk alongside us in those moments where he knows our heart is going to be disappointed, but his will outweighs it all. Which means that every prayer that you pray will not be answered the way that you want it answered. But that God is not absent and he is not without sympathy and compassion. And that he will strengthen and he will comfort and he will encourage. This is what he does for Jesus. And this is why Jesus truly understands submission to God's will. Because he prays very earnestly and very truthfully with tears that fall like blood, right? That God would do something that God doesn't do. But in the same breath, he says, God, even if you choose not to, you are still God, and I want my will to bend to yours and not yours to mine. If I could craft my prayer life around those kind of ideas, saying, God, in all of my humanity, I do need this. I'm begging you, Lord, for this. However, in the middle of this, if you choose to move in a different way, I want to trust you. And I believe that you will strengthen me and encourage me and, and support whatever I need as you walk me through your will. Even if that is more struggle and hurt along the way, I still choose you. This is why Jesus is a great high priest, because he has walked in that moment that you and I are petrified of. And he has perfectly chosen to be submissive to God's will. We have got to change the way that we think about even our own approach of God, a prayer life to God, saying, I want to be submissive to the place where, yes, I'm going to petition God with things, But I'm also going to say, Lord, I want what you want. I want you to not bend your will to me, but I want to bend all of myself to you, right? So those are the first two things, right? Jesus understands and is sympathetic to our struggles, compassionate, and he also understands submission to the true will of God. And then finally, we're going to wrap all this up with this last one. Jesus understands what it means to suffer. Listen to the last part. We'll go to verse 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be priest in the order of Melchizedek. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. So what we're seeing here is, is again, really complicated. Um, and I'm going to try and make it really easier to understand. But we could spend a lifetime trying to understand what we're talking about here when we talk about perfection and obedience. Um, but what we learn here quickly is that Jesus, the great high priest, understands suffering. Like real suffering. And in this suffering brings about his perfection, and his perfection brings about salvation. 
That's kind of the linear move here. Now, what we're not saying is that there was a time that Jesus was not perfect and therefore suffered and became perfect. What we're not saying is that Jesus was sort of perfect, suffered, and then learned and became perfect after that. There's never a time where Jesus is not perfect. But what we are saying is that the perfection of Jesus is not in its totality until he finishes and completes the movement of obedience to the cross. So Jesus is made perfect in the final move and the totality of his life of suffering by taking on the agony of the cross. So Jesus' perfection does not come about in its totality, even though he is God's son, does not come about in its totality until that final move on the cross. And that's important, right? Because Jesus can be perfect his whole life and then get to the very end and be like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, Well, he loses that perfection. Therefore, we have no salvation. So the perfection of Jesus' obedience has got to be mirrored every moment of his life, but is not brought to total perfection until he takes on the agony and death on the cross and God raises him victoriously and Jesus is made perfect in that moment. But The value there is this. Jesus' suffering was fruitful. It is not meaningless. In other words, God didn't have his son walk through all of these things on earth. The abuse, the beating, the betrayal, the hurt, all of those pieces, right? The abandonment, the cross, the humiliation, the torture, the death for nothing. Suffering And God's economy is always about fruitfulness. God is never calling us to suffer for the sake of suffering. But suffering in the human condition is part of one of two things. One, it's part of God's great design. And two, it's part of us growing us closer to Christ. Always. Suffering in our life is always about God's will and about drawing us closer to Him. Meaning the suffering that you're walking through today, and many of you are walking through it, Is not meaningless, which means you have to turn your mindset around from why me, God, to God, what are you doing in me? To why is this happening and turn it into a God, what are you trying to bring about? What in this suffering can I find? How can I be more like Jesus? What am I walking through? What are you ironing out in my heart? What are you leading me towards? Because Jesus' suffering was leading towards perfection that ultimately leads to you and to me being saved. Not one point or one moment of Jesus' suffering was meaningless. But everything he walked through is so that we have a Savior that we relate to. And that the culmination of that totality on the cross actually brings about salvation. So not only can we relate to this Savior who's walked that we've walked through and suffered what we've suffered, but his suffering wasn't meaningless and it actually brings about something incredibly beyond description, which is when we obey him, it brings about salvation. Jesus understands what it means to suffer. You do not walk alone. Whatever you are suffering in, not only does Jesus understand, but he also understands that it's not meaningless. So we need to dry up the pity party that we often have for ourselves, the why nobody else has to walk through what I walk through and why their life is so much easier and why I have to keep struggling and dry up that pity party and start asking ourselves this, if suffering is not meaningless, what is God doing in me? If suffering is never meaningless in the economy of God, then what is he showing me and what do I need to do? And how can I see him richly in this? How is this going to change me and most likely change the people around me? You see, our attitude in suffering is usually so stinking broken because it's so much about me. 
And usually we're just frustrated that people around us don't have to deal with it. But the reality is that Christ suffered and his suffering brought about perfection. Listen to that last part in verse 9 where he says this. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from that, he suffered, and once made perfect, like once Jesus went the way of the cross, flawlessly and sinlessly, obediently died and was resurrected, he was made perfect. The totality of his suffering led to perfection, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, meaning that everything that Jesus walked through was all for the point that if you put your faith and trust in him, you will be saved. Every moment of Jesus' suffering was so that we might experience his eternal glory. Never meaningless. Even though Jesus cried out for God to take it, he still submitted to the will of God, and God in all of his incredible, incredible, vast, just knowledge of the totality of redemptive history would bring us to a place where Jesus' suffering would bring about my salvation. That one day, as a 17-year-old kid, I would put my faith in Christ and it would change my life forever because Jesus suffered And the suffering that I walk through as a follower of Christ is never meaningless. It is always leading me closer to Jesus, and at times it has been used to strengthen and encourage other people. The suffering that my friend walked through as we experienced and shared our struggles of our loss of our fathers, his suffering was not meaningless. Because at some point in there, he encouraged my soul and it changed my outlook on the whole thing. Less about me, and more about gratitude. This is why Jesus is the ultimate and great high priest. It's why he is better than any human that we would ever have. It's why human leaders will always fail. But Jesus, the great and ultimate high priest, is sympathetic to our struggle. He's compassionate. He understands it. And he understands what it means to submit to the will of God, even in those hard moments. And he understands what it means to suffering, and that suffering is never meaningless. And it always, always, always produces fruit as a follower of Christ. So today as we wrap this up and we look towards the only go-between we will ever need, Jesus Christ, right? We have to ask ourselves, where is my focus? Is it on the great high priest, the one that goes between holy God, the only one that I will ever need that made the ultimate sacrifice for me that struggles and suffered and knows my hurts, walks them but sinlessly, who suffered and brought about my salvation? Or is this really just all about me? I want it to be all about Jesus, supremely sufficient Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the depth of your word. That these are deeply challenging texts, but incredibly, incredibly rich. I can do nothing without Christ. That is fully evident. I almost just gave up this week and took this whole Bible and just threw it out into the street. I just wrestled with pieces of this so much. But what you did in me, ironing these things out in my heart, was just beautiful. Whether or not we understand it all doesn't really matter. The truth is, is that what I see perfectly lined out in this text is that I could do nothing for myself. I can't be a go-between, holy, majestic God in my sin. I am deeply broken. I had to have a Savior. And you loved me so much and you loved every single person in this place so much, Lord, that you sent your son who obediently and selflessly and sinlessly walked every struggle I would ever have, suffered unimaginable things, all so that I might know you. That that true picture of deep, 
real love is something I will never understand and it's something I will never deserve. But Lord, I'm overwhelmed with the reality of it. That Jesus' suffering leads to his perfection, which leads to my salvation. And so I put all my faith and hope in Christ. Not in this world, not in the church, not in whatever author, book, or worship leader, or whatever, blogger, I don't even care. But just in Jesus. I don't care what the world says. Just give me Jesus. Lord, you are the perfect and beautiful go-between. You are the savior of our souls. You are the great and perfect high priest and the only one we will ever need. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would let that resonate in our hearts and our souls. That you would echo that through the chambers of our heart and that we might leave here encouraged, empowered, and more in love with Jesus than ever before. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, our High Priest, and our Redeemer. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Sing this with me. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. praise we could ever bring. You're worthy of everything we could ever bring. We live for you. We sing Jesus. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one could ever say you're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you oh we live for you sing holy and holy there is no one like you there is none beside
we know these words. this morning and again let's thank Chase for leading us in worship over the past two weeks we're grateful for that Chase thank you brother appreciate you the challenge as we walk out of this place is to believe those things to be true to truly let them anchor into our soul to believe that not only is Christ those things but he is in those those things in me that he is the great high priest the only go-between that we would ever need. He is holy and majestic and righteous, that he is sympathetic and that he understands what it means to submit to the will of God. He understands my suffering, and yet he loves me anyway. And in God's incredible fullness, right, he created this way that we might have salvation through Jesus' perfect suffering, that if we put our trust and obey him, we're saved. It's the greatest news that you will ever be told. Let it sink into your soul and change who you are. Go in peace.